welcome to the Black Stock Triangle and Arsenal podcast. I'm your host once again, Alex, and alongside me once again is Nelly. Nelly, how are you? Quite alright, Alex. Thanks for having me. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good, uh, especially after that performance over the weekend. Definitely made my weekend, that's for sure. And also some of the other results made my weekend too. It was an overall uh, very positive weekend for the Arsenal. Um, but obviously, let's uh, let's start off with us before we get into anything else. Um, what did you think of our performance? Uh, uh, you know, 4-0, an emphatic result. Uh, but yeah, what did you make of it? I think overall it was a very good performance. I mean, this, you can't be critical really of 4-0. Right? Brentford may not be a team that's going to be you know, finishing at the top end of the table, but you can only beat what's in front of you. And as we know, Bournemouth, Wolves didn't win. Bournemouth, yeah, Bournemouth sorry, of course. Yeah. Brentford, who played in the Cup. Um, Bournemouth. But with Man City lost to Wolves. So we this was a similarly difficult game, probably, to the game Man City had. And Arsenal won 4-0, whereas Man City dropped points. So overall, fantastic performance. 4-0 is a fair score, probably. Uh, there were two penalties in there, but they were both deserved penalties. And I feel that it was a very good performance. Didn't concede. Didn't really look like conceding. One good save Raya made, but we didn't really look like conceding. It was never a real point in the game where it felt a goal was coming against Arsenal. And we scored right at the end as well. Kept pushing right to the end. So overall, it was the best performance Arsenal realistically could have done against the opponents that were in front of them. So, do you think it, do you think it's our best performance of the season? Possibly, we have a very good Champions League game, but I think possibly it has been our best performance of the season. I mean, you know, we, on away day, Bournemouth. Uh, I mean, I know Bournemouth isn't probably, but you know, away days can away. Because obviously, we play PSV at home. Uh, away days, though, we, we know in the Premier League can be tricky. Although we seem to have phenomenal away form, and it's almost like uh, when we go away, the opposition becomes the visitor, and then when the visitor comes to the Emirates, it's like we're the away team. It's quite bizarre at the moment. Uh, yeah, yes, our form does seem to be uh, the wrong way around for home and away at the moment. But um, I think yeah, it's certainly got to be one of our best performances. It, it's a four nil, so how critical can we be? So. I think it's all around very good. It was also very good to see some of our players we were worried about their fitness come back and play well. Uh, Martinelli, Saka, uh, Rice all played. So it's good that they didn't pick up long-term injuries. And overall, it was a very good performance. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Arteta being the the, uh, the sly uh, manager that he is, making people believe that, you know, it might be, people, players might be out for a bit longer, but yeah, you're right, absolutely. You know, we obviously want to make sure we have a, as fit a squad as we can have. And obviously, so early on in the season, having so many players injured, it kind of, it was a bit worrying there for a second, like, oh, if these are long-term, then it's going to be, you know, a long season for us. But actually, I actually saw on Twitter today, apparently even Thomas Partey is now training with the, the first eleven. So if he's back as well, then... You know, we're, we're looking good, although we do have the international break, I think, coming up after Man City. But, uh, you know, if 
if all these players can stay fit, uh, we, you know, we've got a very good opportunity here. Especially, obviously, as you mentioned, with Man City dropping points against Wolves, you know, Liverpool dropping points against Tottenham. All of a sudden, there's only one point in it, and you know, the, there's always twists and turns in the Premier League. So we are we're starting to, I think, we're starting to look a lot, probably a lot better place than maybe what some Arsenal fans thought we would have, uh, based on you know some of the rhetoric around. Oh, you know, we haven't had this great a start as we did last season when in reality we're only what one point off where we were last season after the same number of fixtures so yeah it's it's looking not looking too bad i guess um look just on the bournemouth game still i guess let's look let's talk about kai Havertz. yeah okay he's, he scored the they gave him the penalty it seemed like it was a sort of it was a captain move by odegaard to give him the penalty um, and say, look, try and get, you know, almost like a confidence booster for him. Um, what did you make of, I guess, two questions. What did you make of him giving, him getting given that penalty and then his performance in general in that game? So giving him the penalty, given in hindsight, was the right decision because he scored it. If he'd missed it, it'd have been a terrible decision. But Kai Havertz, is a player I don't. We've mentioned in more than once in several podcasts that he's, we haven't seen the best of him yet. We know how good Kai Havertz can be. He's played for Germany well. He played in the German league well. He didn't do very well at Chelsea, partly because it wasn't clear what position he was playing in. And I do think he has real potential to be one of the best players in the Arsenal team. Giving him the penalty was probably the right thing to do, and definitely was because he scored it. It's a good confidence boost. We were already 2-0 up and dominating the game at the time it happened. So it takes a lot of pressure off. It makes it much easier to score the penalty, I think, when there's low pressure on it. And it was a perfectly fine penalty, scored. And then I think his overall performance is getting there with, with Havertz. It might take him another 10 games to reach. Sometimes it could take a season or two to reach their absolute true potential, players like him. But I think we're, we're getting there. He looks better than he does, certainly in the first couple of games of the season. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of, you know, hindsight has twenty twenty vision um, in these sorts of moments. If you're taking it and missed, you know, that, that all of a sudden ramps up the pressure on him even more. You know, because it's like, oh, you can't even score a penalty. You know, that you could imagine what the rhetoric would have been then, especially from opposition fans around Kai Havertz. But yeah, I think, um, I think in terms of, you know, his performances in for Germany and by Leverkusen, he's been great. And I just think with Chelsea, Chelsea seems to be a club where even some of the best players, they can go to die. You know, it's like, it's just, it's kind of bizarre in the sense that you look at someone like Kevin De Bruyne, who went to Chelsea, flopped, Mo Salah, yeah, and you think, you look at them now and you just think, you, you know, those those were the players that Chelsea deemed weren't good enough. So, yeah, it's it's just an interesting, I guess, mixture of his past and now his present. I, I think, I, I didn't actually think he was that bad. I thought his, his role, I, I felt like he worked probably the hardest that I've seen him worked in a game against Bournemouth. 
And when he's when he did score, it he did look a different kind of player, almost like he was working just that little bit harder. So listen, you never know. You never know what that can sort of lead to, I guess, and the catalyst of him scoring that goal and what it might unlock, hopefully, to many great things. But uh, let's, all right, um, I mean, let's let's talk about Saka. You know, Saka and I, I guess yeah, he's, you look at his record at the start of the season, I think we mentioned this in the last pod, where people said that he was out of form and yet he's just still scoring and still just doing what he does best, really. But there does seem to be a reluctance from Mikel Arteta to, to sub him off. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but he, you know he's hobbling around on the pitch and Arteta just almost wants to break him. It's 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 bizarre, really. But what did you make of, I guess, of Sack's performance and uh, you know, Saka not being subbed off? Do you think, do you think that's an issue? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think Saka's been performing very well. Maybe we did say in the last couple of games that he hadn't been quite at the very high standard that's usually expected from him. Uh, And maybe that's partly due to injuries. We've seen him limping in a couple of games now. He does get fouled quite a lot by nature of the way he plays. He's very quick. He changes direction. He dribbles very well. It's inevitable that he will get fouls, so he'll get kicks for his ankles and shins. But he played very well. I, I read, I believe that's only his second ever headed goal at senior level. The one he got. So, another notch to his uh, arrow. But the overall performances of Saka are very good. It does seem Arteta is reluctant to not play him 90 minutes every league game. He was already got the record for the longest continual appearances for Arsenal in the league. And when he took a minor injury last week, we all expected that run would come to an end. But then he started this weekend. So I think there it, there must be a reason Arteta's doing it. It's not like there aren't good other options. Reese Nelson, Emil Smith-Rowe. When we were 2-0 up at half-time, it might have been the right time to take Saka off. Certainly, maybe earlier in the second half than he did come off. But he's playing well. I, hopefully, he doesn't get injured. There may, it may be that he is recovering well from these injuries and doing full training sessions and not limping in between games. And that's why he's playing. Um, all players get injured eventually. So uh, I hope Bukayo Saka doesn't suffer a significant injury soon because he does seem to be playing very much on the edge. Uh, maybe he's too good to drop if he's healthy might be Arteta's reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, he is a phenomenal player. Well, I don't think anyone disputes that. He's just, yeah. I, but I do agree that, you know, we have Reese Nelson, we have Emil Smith-Rowe. Why don't we use him a bit more? I don't know. Like you said, maybe there probably is a reason. It doesn't seem like Arteta's the kind of manager to just do stuff for the sake of doing it. He seems very methodical, very analytical in the way he manages his team. So uh, there must be some reason. But, yeah, look, obviously... We want to try and, I don't want to say wrap him up in cotton wool, but we want to try and protect him for as long as we can. I guess my concern would be, I look kind of of, of what, I, can't, I look at what Fergie, Sir Alex Ferguson did to Wayne Rooney. You know, by the time Rooney was in his early 30s, he, he was gone. Like he just, you know, he wasn't the same player anymore. So I, I, and although I'm not saying that, oh, we should, 
try and, you know, get Saka to play until he's 40. I guess that's really not, you know, Arteta's job or Arsenal Football Club's job to try and elongate someone's career to the point of, well, as, you know, past 35 or, you know, as long as possible. It was all about, obviously, it's a sport that's about results. Um, but, yeah, I just, I, I kind of have that in the back of my mind thinking, God, I hope he doesn't end up like that, you know, because we just, we just sort of run him into the ground a little bit. But, look, uh, it is what it is, uh, and we obviously have to try and win games, and want to, we, want, we want to win trophies, and I'm sure if Saka does end up winning trophies um, for us, and you, then he's going to, he'll look back and say, well, it was probably worth it. So I guess six and one, half a dozen the other. Um, look, let's talk about the centre-back pairing. Uh, Gabriel and Saliba, once again, you know, incredibly solid. Are they the best centre-back pairing in the league, do you think? They're certainly up there. The They're very good defensively, certainly. Some teams try and play with certain more ball-playing centre-backs than Arsenal do. Gabriel, in particular, is not a uh, ball-playing centre-back. Not a truly elite ball-playing centre-back, anyway. Uh, defensively, the two of them are, are fantastic. Uh very good block made by Gabriel, I believe it was, in the, in the box in that game. We've seen Saliba make fantastic tackles. Gabriel in particular is the kind of defender you never see a player is just too good for him. Uh, if ever the person he was defending scores, it, it's his fault he's made a mistake because he's so good that no one can just be too good for him. Even, I know it was only the Community Shield, but uh, even the Community Shield game, we saw that Erling Haaland couldn't get through Arsenal's defence, and they're really playing well. I think that as a centre-back pairing, as a defensive unit that Arsenal have, it is one of the best in, in the league. If we're going to win the league this year, we'll probably be, have to be the team that concedes the fewest goals. And I think we've got a shot at doing that particularly with those two playing the way they played that weekend. So you're saying that um, we're probably not going to score as many goals as the likes of Man City and maybe even Liverpool, so we have to try and make sure that defensively we're solid? Yes. I mean, <clears throat> I don't think... Liverpool, I don't really think, are going to be our title contenders. I don't think... Arsenal are going to finish second behind Liverpool this season. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Uh, Man City are probably have got a, a player called Erling Haaland who scores a lot of goals. I think it's quite likely they might score more than us this season. It, uh, it's difficult to win the league if you're not the team with the best defence. Yeah. And no, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And I think I 100% agree. I think just from my, my perspective is that I, th I feel like Liverpool, they have sort of a, an ability where they can they can outscore their opponent. You know, they might concede, but I feel like just you know, with how much quality, they got so many good players up front, you know, they're just almost like it's unreal. Um, it's almost like, oh, the, if they do concede two, they'll score three. You know, whilst with us, I'm not saying that we can't do that, but I think we, we've, we've got to almost be a little bit more clinical in our, in, in our, in our defensive ability compared to, say, like a Liverpool where they seem to just be able to score a lot more goals or they just have that ability to outscore the, their opposition? 
Yes, I mean, there's certainly an aspect to it. Arsenal, we're, we're good going forwards and we're good defensively. Uh, we need to be... If you're not the best at defence or the best at attack, it's quite difficult to win the league. And yeah. We're much more balanced, Arsenal, I think. If Arsenal are going to win the league, we're going to have to try and, I think, be the best defensive team. Right? Uh, because we've got... We know what our forward players our forward players can do, particularly our elite front three of Martinelli, Saka and Odegaard. They only need a few opportunities a game to get one or two goals. The times that Arsenal have dropped points this season has been in games in which we scored twice. We scored twice against Fulham and Drew. We scored twice against Tottenham and Drew. Is our def- if anything is going to let us down, it's our defence. But I don't think it will. I am hoping it's going to come good. Our defence. It looked very good last in the last game. To get a clean sheet away from home in the Premier League is not easily done. And like I said, Raya only made one good save, and it wasn't a truly fantastic save, which means that the defence played well. If your goalkeeper's quiet and you don't concede. You've defended well. There's no other interpretation of that. So if they keep up like that, that's definitely the... We'll see a true test of the centre defence and defence as a whole next weekend against Man City. If they keep clean clean sheet there, it could win us the league. Yeah, are we are we playing at home? Oh, I don't I know. Think we're, I think we're at home. I think it's at the Emirates. Which, to be honest, it re- honestly, with the way our home form has been, that's probably even, that's more concerning. <laughs> we maybe might have been better off if it was if it was at the Etihad. I don't know. Um, we, are, we haven't conceded, I think, away from home yet this season, have we? No, we haven't, because it was Crystal Palace away, then Everton away, and now Bournemouth away, and that's it. And we haven't conceded. So we're yeah, we're six nil away from home at the moment. So yeah. That's actually, yeah, well, look, you know what? I, I, will, I will say this about Man City. The past couple of games without Rodri, they've looked a different team. So I think if we... If, uh, yeah, this is me, the best time to play. Absolutely. While I, for, and, uh, I feel like for me, it's now or never. Like, honestly, because I'm looking at them without Rodri and I'm thinking, man, they are not the same team. And yeah, I think if... Oh man, we just we've got to we've really got to turn it on. We've got to get stay. We've got to get focused, and we just got to do whatever we can to try and get the three points. So if we can get the three points of Man City, even though it's at home, but you know, if we can get the three points in that game, that's a huge statement, in my opinion. That's a massive statement. This is one of the games. If we win this one, and we win the league, we'll look back and go, "Oh, this is the one." And if we don't win, lose. If we don't win. Even if we draw it, potentially, if we don't win, we'll look back at the end of the season and we'll say, oh, when we played City while Rodri was suspended early on and they just lost to Wolves. City have lost two games in a row because they lost yeah. to Newcastle in the, in the Cup and then they lost to Wolves on the weekend. City have lost yeah. two in a row. Yeah. The time to play them is right now. And we've definitely got to be trying to win it. If we win, we're top of the league, potentially joint top with Tottenham. Yeah. So... Yeah. And we'll be two points ahead of Man City, who are our biggest biggest threat, our biggest rivals this season are Man City. It's not going to be Liverpool or Tottenham. I don't think Arsenal will finish second behind Liverpool or finish second behind Tottenham. 
if Arsenal finish second this year, they'll be finishing behind Man City. Yeah, 100%. And, and look, I think when you look at last season, we gave Man City all six points last season. And, you could, and if you have a look, really, that's what cost us the league. Because if we'd even drawn both those games, if we had drawn home and away... They would have what? They would have dropped. They would have dropped four points. So they would have been on eighty-five points, and we would have been on eighty-six points. So that would have been enough. So, you know, th- those are the margins. When you when you when it's this close, you have to. You, you can't just let them take all six points in both the in both the home and away fixtures. We have to get something. Um, oh yeah, and winning this game is particularly if you're viewing it as against Man City. Winning this game is worth six points. Because not only is it three points for Arsenal, it's three points not for Man City. Yeah. It's three points then denied. It's a six-point game. And yeah. I, I think right now, like you said, with Rodri out, they've lost the two games the Rodri has been out for. Um, this is the time to play them. It is at the Emirates. I've checked it was at the Emirates. It is going to be at the Emirates. And our away form has been better than our home form. But We've got to be positive and expect to go into this game, win it, top the league, and go on from there. This will be our. This will be the point where we realise we could win it again, like last yeah. season. Oh yeah, uh, it could be. It could very well be. Um, look, we'll, obviously, we'll definitely, definitely get on the pod to review that game, whatever the result is. So, look, we'll, let's go back to just Bournemouth quickly, and I think because I think we need to really, we've got a heap some praise onto our, some of our players for their performance. I mean, it was such a clinical performance and something that, you you know, after the draw against Tottenham, which, I you know, I think we kind of felt, although we still managed to get a point, it, I think it almost felt like a loss, you know. Um, let's talk about Odegaard. Uh, for, I mean, he was phenomenal. Um, man of the match performance. Um, what do you think of his overall performance and his, I guess, you know, obviously he's the captain now. Um, he's been the captain for what season and a half almost uh, yeah what did you make of him well I said in our last episode that uh, Odegaard has been our best player so far this season and I stand by that I've not uh, nothing in that game to dissuade me of that opinion he got I think two assists because he won a penalty and he crossed to Ben White and scored his penalty and set up Martinelli who's shot was then rebounded to Sakari scored. So he was in all four of the goals. He was involved in everything. True captain's performance. And running out of adjectives to describe Martin Odegaard at the moment because he's arguably been the best player in the Premier League so far this season. Not Not just for Arsenal. There are very few players whose performances have been as good there's Martin Odegaard ball. for any team. Yeah, stand ball. by it then. <laughs> who who <laughs> no, are you? Okay. Better than Martin Odegaard so far this season. Oh, man. Look, I know, look, I agree. I think he's been phenomenal. Uh, I mean, is is there anyone else that's been better looking? Yeah, man, you, you could maybe say Son at Tottenham. I mean, he's been pretty good for them. And as yeah, much man. as that pains me to say that, it really does pain me to say that. But... You know, he's been really, you know, he's been phenomenal for them. Uh, but yeah, look, I, I think Odegaard, I mean, for what, for, for how much we spent, I mean, we got, what was it, 38 million pounds? I mean, that's just, ugh, what a bargain, you know, unreal, unreal. And he's just, he's come in, he, he's, he's just, 
you know, like a hand into a glove. He's been such a – and the fact that he's such a leader as well now, I feel like he's really just grown into his own now that he's come to Arsenal. And, look, I'm more, more of it, please. <laughs> Keep it going because, yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's – Let's talk about Declan Rice and probably Zinchenko. You know, I want to talk about both of them sort of in parallel because, as we know, it seems to be the Arteta go-to where Zinchenko inverts into midfield um, and they sort of play almost like a dual pivot with Declan Rice and Zinchenko. I feel like with, with Rice, and this is no disrespect to Thomas Partey, you know, he's been a fantastic player for us, but... Declan Rice, it just he he has taken our midfield to another level, and with Zinchenko inverting into midfield with Rice, you know there were a couple of occasions when you could see Declan Rice would get the ball, he would maybe run to the left, so all of a sudden Zinchenko and him would be sort of very close, and Zinchenko would then run sort of around to be on the right hand side to sort of create that space and create that double pivot. And then, you know, there were times when Declan Rice would make that run forward. And I think there was a time where he got the ball and he was on the left-hand side. Sinchenko moved to the right and then he made that driving run up the left and then passed the ball. I think it was either to Enketi or Jesus. And it was, you know, you could just see it was almost like it feels like they're now starting, now that they've had a few games under their belt, it's like their the wavelength is starting to, they're on the same wavelength, you know. Um yeah, so what do you make of, I guess, those sort of tactics? Is Zinchenko, Declan Rice, for me, I think it's, you know, it works so well. And I think a lot of people underrate Zinchenko. I think he is so pivotal to how we play. But yeah, what did you make of, I guess, both of their performances? I think the two of them played fantastically well together. You said with uh, all due respect to Thomas Partey, earlier on in the season, we saw Thomas Partey trying to do effectively a mirror image of Zinchenko's role, so not Rice's role, but he was playing it right back and inverting it in. We saw that in the first couple of games of the season. I think it works better when it's Zinchenko from the left doing it. I think Zinchenko is more suited to naturally being a defender that comes into midfield than Partey, who is a midfielder, trying to play as a defender that came into midfield was more difficult for him. And your analysis of the movements of Rice and Zinchenko is very apt. It really is difficult to defend when Zinchenko can run underlaps or overlaps, which is what he seems to be able to do, particularly with Rice. And Rice seems to have the uh, very enviable ability to see the pass. It's very easy when you're in the stand or on watching it on a TV to see where the pass is. It's much harder on the pitch. But Declan Rice seems to make very few mistakes along that. From that, he seems to do very well, and particularly with Zinchenko, it's very good. One thing I will say about these kind of tactics is I think they work better against teams you would expect to beat when you're playing teams that you know you're probably going to have the lion's share of possession. You're going to have more possession in the opponent's half. These kind of tactics work better than they may do against a team like Man City, where they're more likely to catch you out and break down that wing. It's, it, 
I think we'll see quite a lot this season from Arteta. I think it's a good tactic to get three points out of teams that you'd expect to finish in the bottom half of the table because, as has been discussed before, those teams often set up and play a kind of low block, right? Try and focus on keeping a clean sheet or only conceding one goal and maximise their chances of picking up any points from the game. This does beat that very well because it's difficult to low block against defenders that cut in and then it creates space somewhere else as someone open. So I think we'll see it a bit less against Man City. They will probably start Zinchenko and Rice and they will do it a bit. But I think we'll see it a bit less against Man City and we'll see it a lot more against teams like you know Brentford, Bournemouth, Everton, Burnley, Luton, clubs like that. We'll see a lot more of the uh, inverted uh, left back from Zinchenko. I feel like Bournemouth, they really, they tried to play almost, they wanted to go toe-to-toe to us, toe, like with us. And I, I, I thought that was quite bizarre. I thought, you know, is that really, are you really going to succeed that way? Uh, Bournemouth are going to be in a relegation battle. I, I honestly felt like, I'm not saying they're a bad team, but I thought maybe, you know, they might have been a bit more structured and, and have a bit of a low block, even maybe a more of a mid block or something. But, it, you know, especially in the first in the first half, first maybe half an hour, they really tried to go toe-to-toe with us and, and I felt like that was probably a mistake on their behalf. Maybe it was just the confidence from from last season at the Emirates where obviously, you know, we got that late winner, the Reese Nelson winner that, that, you know, seems to be infamous now in folklore. But, uh, you know, it, it, did, it did seem like they wanted to try and go toe-to-toe with us and I just, I'm not sure if that was the right tactic. I think it, Clearly wasn't, partly because they lost 4-0 doing it. Uh, so yeah, with hindsight, <laughs> it definitely wasn't the right tactic in hindsight. Uh, it does seem a bizarre decision. Uh, no idea what's going on uh, at Bournemouth. I, it's difficult to know, but I don't... Yeah. I, I think Bournemouth may well get relegated. They might stay up. Uh, I think they have probably more likely to stay up and go down but they're not going to get a lot of points against the top five or six teams playing like that because they will get outplayed they might manage to get one win again one or two wins against teams that are slightly better than them that wouldn't expect it but we've but now they've tried it against Arsenal everyone will have noticed that it does strike me as a distinct mistake for clubs like Bournemouth to play the way they did I would have thought they would have played more kind of a mid-block game than they did. And the problem with going toe-to-toe with a team that's better than you are is that when inevitably things stop going your way, you wind up losing by quite a lot. There's nothing you can do. You've already behind, and then there's no way out of it. Bournemouth looked almost as good as Arsenal for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the game. And then as soon as the first goal went in, they were they were done. It struck me as a likely outcome, and they then don't really have any options. So I do think it was a flawed tactic from their behalf. But we're the beneficiaries of it, so great. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk about Gabriel Jesus, because I feel like he's starting to look back to his sort of former self, his previous best, um, and although he didn't score, 
he, I just thought that, I mean, there was that run that he made where, I mean, it should have been a yellow card. Um, where he, the, you know, the players, the Bournemouth players just pulling his shirt so blatantly. The ref's trying to play advantage. Uh, you know, I just didn't understand that refereeing decision, but be that as it may, uh, Emma Smith Rowe had a great chance on goal and he, he just got tipped wide. Um, but yeah, Gabriel Jesus, you know, how, well, how do you think he's looking? I think he look, he's looking very good. I think he's looking almost back to his best. What did you make of his performance? Yeah, yeah I agree. I think he's coming back to his best. I mean, he's had two injuries in quick succession. He got injured at the World Cup and then he was injured kind of during the off-season as well. So he'd had two in, two significant injuries in less than a year. But he's still quite young. I think he's 24, 25, around that age. He's young enough to recover. And whilst he didn't score and hasn't scored many this season, he is starting to get there. He didn't score many goals last season. We're always comparing this season to last season because we started so well last season. And we are, as you mentioned, in a very similar position. This time last season, we'd lost one game. And this time around, we've drawn two. So we're one point down. Uh I think that Jesus is playing almost as well as he was at the start of last season. And if he continues to do to get back to his best it's and stays fit, which he's not had an un, a non-injury interrupted season last year. It's only a second season. He missed a lot of games to injury in the first one. If he can play the remaining Premier League matches this season and keep up this level of performance, it might be the difference between us winning the league and not. I do think he's got the ability to create, not necessarily just getting assists himself, but he makes runs and draws players out of position and makes the pass before the assist quite a lot. Yeah. And the only th- criticism we really have is he doesn't score enough goals. He doesn't quite get enough like bad goals when the opportunity presents itself and you just got to poke it to the goal. He's not quite good enough at that. It's the only criticism we'd have of him. But he makes up for it in other ways because he creates chances for the others. And Arsenal have our you know, three truly fantastic attacking players and he complements them very well. Yeah, He's he the does. right striker for those three. Yeah, no, so, 100%. And I think that's part of the reason why um, Saka and Martinelli both scored 20 goals each or over 20 goals each last season because his ability to come deep and sort of be almost be that playmaker or to take on, you know, his, his ability to take on, you know, two players, um, you know, is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I think he suits, he, he suits that and it allows our wide players like your Sackers, your Odegaards, your um, Martinelli's, your Trossards to, I guess, benefit from that. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. One of the only criticisms that he doesn't probably score enough goals, but would that then limit his ability to do what what he does for everyone else in the team? I don't know, but look, he's a he's a brilliant player, so I'm not complaining. He's an unbelievable player. Um, I think probably one of the last points I would like to talk about is Raya. Uh, he, he obviously he started uh, Ramsdale started in the League Cup against Brentford, but um, and to be honest, I don't think Ramsdale did much wrong in, in the League Cup. But Raya started uh, against Bournemouth. Are we now seeing potentially 
Raya now taking over the number one spot as our goalkeeper. Obviously, still so many games to go in the season. Um, but did you, did you find that a surprise that Ramsdale didn't play? Um, do you expect Ramsdale to play uh, away um, in the Champions League uh, this week? Uh, what are your thoughts about that situation? <clears throat> I wasn't at all surprised to see Raya start. I thought it had been more... I don't think Arteta made the effort to sign Raya to not play him. I think it was... I agree. I totally agree. I think it's quite clear when the signing went through that Arteta planned for Raya to be Arsenal's number one. Yeah. Uh, he's very, very good goalkeeper. Uh, Ramsdale, no one has any... No Arsenal fans are critical of Ramsdale and his performances. We were critical of him when he was signed. We thought he wasn't worth the money. He proved us wrong. And he may well start in the Champions League. I wouldn't be surprised to see him starting in the Champions League. Having a backup goalkeeper of Aaron Ramsdale's quality is expensive, but offers certain advantages. And it's not just necessarily when the first-choice goalkeeper is injured, it enables you to rotate your squad on awkward away days, like European ones. So Ramsdale may well start. They might Raya might not even go, uh, but I don't I don't know. That's difficult difficult to predict that one. But one thing I think we're all sure of is that Raya will be the starting goalkeeper against City. Yep, I think that's one hundred percent right. And listen, we talked about this in the last pod, you and I. So we we are kind of repeating ourselves. But yeah, I just think Raya's calmness on the ball. You know, it's just it's. Mm, so much more than than Ramsdale, and, and you mentioned to me about how um, I think it was Ben Foster has a podcast or something that he mentioned, and, and Ramsdale was on it, and he said how he'd rather get rid of the ball and get you know yelled at for giving the ball away too quickly rather than being calm on it. And I think maybe Arteta's saying, "No, that's not what I want from you." You know, I look at Raya. Raya would just have his foot on the ball. He's probably not as nonchalant as say an Onana, but you know, he just sort of holds the ball, waits for the right pass. And he he invites the pressure. Raya is someone that it looks like he invites the pressure. He's like, listen, come to me. I I dare you to come close to me because we'll break on you. And when we do, we'll score. Like, it's almost like he wants that. Whilst you don't get that feeling with Ramster, or at least I don't. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I think, as you mentioned, Arteta's board in Raya for an obvious reason. I kind of think... That's what it is. His car, he's much more calmer on the ball, invites the pressure. Um, and I think it's almost a case where Arteta's like, listen, if you concede, you concede. It's okay. I would much rather you do this because I feel like this is our best opportunity in order to actually win games. So if you, if you do somehow get pressed and you lose the ball, so be it. You know, we should have enough firepower to then be able to win. But, you know, that's just the way we play. And that's how, look, Arteta's probably obviously, and we probably talked about this before on the pod as well. He's of the same, you know, ilk of a Pep Guardiola, where he's basically saying, "This is how we play," and you will either adapt to the way we play or you are not playing at all. Um, look, I guess you know. I know. I, said, I know. I said that was the last point, but I want to also bring up just one other thing before we go, um, and it's the Tottenham Liverpool game, and specifically, I want to talk about the officiating. Um, Liverpool have obviously come out with the statement today about potentially 
seeking other avenues. Now, whether that means litigation or not, I don't know. But I don't know whether you had an opportunity to watch some highlights or anything like that, Nelly, about that game. And I know this is obviously an Arsenal podcast, but I do feel like there's always, every weekend, there is something about the officiating in the Premier League. Always. Without fail. And I think, is it getting to that point now where some of the clubs in the Premier League, it's getting to that boiling point and it's starting to boil over where they're saying, you know what, enough's enough. You can't just make mistakes and then I'll just apologize. It's not good enough because ultimately your apologies mean nothing really if you're not going to do anything about it. You know, you can apologize until you're blue in the face, but at the end of the day, if the mistake keeps happening, then there's a wider issue. Um, yeah, did you end up seeing any of that? Have you taken any notice of it? So, yes, um, I've seen the footage of the controversially disallowed goal. Um, I've also seen that the VAR video assistant referee and the assistant VAR have been removed from duties until further notice. I'm not sure where what the source on that is, but I've seen that as a, as a headline. So if that's true, maybe something has happened. Uh, the issue with VAR is when you look at the alternatives that exist in other sports, right? sports like, say, rugby, uh, American football, sports like that, gridiron football, as it's often known, the kind of video challenges system kind of works. It works very well in cricket, is another example. And whilst it was imperfect when it first came in, all of these sports are ahead of football in, in this regard. It wasn't this bad. I, I'm old enough to remember when it first came in in sports like cricket and rugby. And very occasionally there were disputed decisions where it was looked at from the cameras and the people watching at home might not agree. But it wasn't like it's going on in football. The only thing I can think that's causing this problem is that the referees and the video assistant referees just aren't good enough. That because of the culture of poor refereeing that has existed in football for so long, they're not held to the same standards as rugby referees or cricket umpires. And that with, with the video technology now, it's exposing just how consistently bad they are. And this is very frustrating when you're on the wrong side of these decisions. I understand why Liverpool fans would be furious because it, it wasn't offside. And Liverpool could well have won that game and be top of the league right now if it hadn't been for that. It was truly awful. And I, I think what needs to happen is they need to fire a lot of the people who are currently doing this and find better people. It can't be that hard. Like we all think that we could do a better job of it. Only some of us are wrong. Right? There must yeah. be a load of people who'd be much better at it. Yeah, yeah. You, but you're not. And listen, look, I guess I agree 100%. And look, just to give my, my two cents worth, I guess, on this whole thing, because I think you know, a lot of people say, is it corruption? I, I don't think it is corruption. I think it's purely incompetence. That's what I, honest, I honestly Agreed. Absolutely agreed. I just think it's just absolute incompetence. I mean, and listen, I think a great example of the level of incompetence that we're dealing with here, Lee Mason, right, who, who was the one who didn't draw the lines for us when Brentford scored when we should have won that game. 
he gets fired for being inept at his job. So what do the PGMOL do? They hire him to be the one that trains new referees on VAR. So the job that he got sacked for, he's now training the new referees to do. I mean, if that doesn't just tell you how idiotic the PGMOL is, I honestly, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what else I can really say apart from just that one example. For me, I think there is a systemic cultural issue with the PGMOL. I think, I honestly think it's a boys' club. That's what I think it is, and I think it's just, you know, these are all mates who, you know, you need a job, mate. No worries, you can't work at the PGMOL. There's no standard. It's like, well, you know, if you're not good enough, oh, we're going to fire you. Oh, you know, what? we'll bring you back. You know, or oh, well, we'll put you on this job. Okay, you're making wrong decision on the pitch. We'll put you in the VAR room. It's like, no, there has to be some level of accountability here. Because like you're saying, if, if Man City or Liverpool or whoever, right, lose a league title by one point, let's say Liverpool end up losing the league title by a point or two points, whatever, they're going to look at that game and go, well, that was the game that cost us the league title. And better yet, let's look at it like this way. If they miss out on top four by one point, think of the tens of millions of dollars that they'll miss out on in revenue purely because of an incompetent decision made by a VAR official in a room because he couldn't draw some lines. You know, I mean, and this is where the issue kind of stems. VAR, the PGMOO, they come out with these apologies, but it doesn't change anything. It's like if you're going to apologize, your apologies are mean. You know, your, your apologies are meaningless, basically, <laughs> because really, if you're not going to do anything about it, then who really cares if you say sorry? Exactly, um, particularly with the video assistant referees, it's very easy to you know, be critical of other people when you're sat here at a table doing a podcast. True, uh, I genuinely believe I would be able to referee a football game to the standard of an average Premier League referee. I think being an on-field referee is really hard. You, Not necessarily the keeping up with a game. I think one could practice that. It's that you don't know what's about to happen and where it's about to happen. So things like off-the-ball incidents where a player, you know, dummies or someone dummies a pass very well and then gets fouled. If the referee is looking where they thought the pass was going to go, they don't see it. Stuff like that happens all the time. It's very difficult. But for someone watching a video of it, right, when you have several seconds and you can watch it through several times and you do know what's about to happen when you're watching it, at least the second time through, it's really not that hard to make these decisions. Right? Everybody at home can see the decisions are wrong. Right? If everybody at home can see it, maybe it's not everybody, maybe it's only 80% of people, but if 80% of people can see you're wrong, then that means the people doing this professionally are complete morons. <laughs> they must be. Right? There's just I think what you said. There's no PGMOL, unlike most organizations, aren't really accountable to anybody. Right? They don't exactly have customers. They're not elected. They can basically do what they want. There's no incentive for them to do a better job right Mm. so they're not doing it properly right there's no real incentive for them to do it well and they're not uh other sports just don't have this problem right 
so I think rugby is slightly more comparable to football than most sports. Right? In that it, you know, it's up and down, and there's you know tackling and ball goes out, all of that. And they use it's not called video assistant referees; it's called something else. But they have you know someone watching the videos, telling the referee things, and potentially showing the referee things. And it works really well. There's never these terrible controversial decisions. Right? Occasionally, it's quite difficult to tell from a camera angle, and you might disagree when it goes your against your team. But there's none of these ridiculous, obviously wrong calls that the video assistant didn't see. Other yeah, sports just forget just to do something. You know. Oh yeah, like, like, yeah. Forget to check. Like they quite sometimes, what they will happen in particularly rugby is they will after they've done something, go, oh, wait, actually, there's a foul in the build-up, right? But they don't forget to check, right? They no. do check. And it's not like the games are so different that that wouldn't work in football. Football and football, the people in the PGMOL must have seen a rugby game, right? They must know how it works there. They're not doing it on purpose. They're just being deliberately... It's not necessarily deliberately incompetent. They're just yeah, not just, they have a yeah. culture of success. They're not trying to do a good job. Yeah, exactly. There is a systemic issue with the culture at PGMOL, um, and like you, you know, like you said, they should probably sack most of them. But like you said, look, being an on-field ref, one hundred percent agree. Very difficult when you're seeing stuff in real time. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen. They did this thing. I think Jamie, uh, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville. They did the thing where they were the, they were pretend to be linesmen and they had the flags and they try and call offside, and it was incredibly difficult. You know, then they they got you know, I think maybe like half of them right. Like it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and then obviously being the actual ref on the field, it's hard. But I just think the way that VAR is used, it's it's just it's so it's so poorly used. It's like it, there is something wrong here. You know, there's something wrong with how you're training people to use it and how you're just using it in general. I mean, one of the things as well, when when the ref uh, of the Liverpool-Tottenham game was asked to go to the screen, they had a still, a still picture of when, um, I think his name's Jones. I can't remember the Liverpool players now. I think it's Jones. I'm not sure. Um, when his studs were going into the player's shin, right? Now, it was a still picture that was already at the screen when, the official when the ref went up to the screen. So by doing that, you're already planting the seed because you've got a still picture there. So rather than having it in motion, you've got you, you've the VAR has put a still picture, and it, it looked horrendous when you look at the when you look at a still picture of it, it. It looked like a really bad tackle. But if you look at it, you know from start to finish, his foot rolls over the ball, and because the ball is there, his foot can't go any lower. So then the studs go into the Tottenham players' legs. Um, and if you actually look at it at full speed, it's not as quick. It doesn't look, it's not a quick, you know, like hit that he's hitting them. Um, and I just think, man, you know, it, that's, that's VAR taking over the officiating. You know, they're basically using VAR to say, oh, this is the, this is the tackle I want you to have a look at. Oh, here's a still picture of it at its worst moment. So rather than at the flow of the game, you know, and, and the, the motion of the game, because that's ultimately the game, the game is played, obviously the Premier League is played at a very high pace. So if you're not going to show those sorts of tackles at a high pace, or at least at, even if it's slow-mo, but maybe not completely slow, but at, you know, from a point of where the action starts and where the action ends, 
you're, you're just Avar is just reofficiating games, um, and it's just I just think the way that they're using it is wrong. It's just completely wrong. And, you know, you mentioned other games using you know video assisted refereeing and in cricket and in rugby. It just it they're so much more clinical with how they use it, and even with you know in cricket using the DRS. You know, it's it's so much more like you look at it now. And look, when it first came in, there were a couple of teething issues, but it was nothing, nothing like this. Exactly. Yeah, um, I, I think rugby is a slightly fairer comparison to football and cricket, is because cricket, obviously, someone ro- runs up, throws the ball at the batsman, they hit it with the bat, and then they stop. Whereas rugby and football both have a kind of flow to them; they run up and down, but. Mm. <clears throat> The thing you mentioned there with that still, that that's something that if the they, referees in football don't already know this when they should do, that's something they don't do in rugby. Right? In rugby, when they're judging whether or not a tackle is dangerous because of its height, for example, whether or not to eat yellow card or red pl- card a player from that, they won't look at it in slow motion because it makes everything you do look really deliberate. Mm, exactly. Everything looks really deliberate in slow motion. So they judge whether or not you've deliberately tackled somebody dangerously in real time uh, because of, as as mentioned, and as you mentioned with starting still, when you see it in slow motion and it looks like someone has very carefully lined up someone to hit them in the head because you're watching it at quarter speed, it looks deliberate. When you see it at real time, you realise that the person has changed direction just before they hit them or something like that, and actually it was much more difficult to hit them, not in the head. So it, if football referees don't already know that, it's because they're choosing not to. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> Rugby's not some super obscure sport that no one can find out the rules of. And <clears throat> they've just chosen not to do it properly. There's no real explanation other than they're not trying very hard to succeed. I'm sure I'm sure Liverpool fans feel highly aggrieved. I felt highly aggrieved last season for Arsenal. Still can potentially claim that we might have won the league if it had gone our way and we had more points on the board when we started struggling. They would have given us a psychological boost. So to just being competent at video refereeing is terrible. And as we've already mentioned the other sports when they brought this in particularly ones that i'm old enough to remember like rugby is probably the fairest one there was occasionally controversial ones it's a bit difficult to tell from the camera angle what it was but there was never any of these ones that were clearly wrong not just loads and loads of clearly wrong decisions and the difference is just the people watching them yeah no look i I agree i mean look we could probably talk about this for another hour but we'll end it there um look fair uh, enough (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's easy to complain, I guess, about refereeing. Uh, look, thanks for joining. Um, just quickly, I guess, actually, you know, before we go, any predictions uh, for Lons? I will go 3-1 to us. Okay. Um, I will go 3-0. I, I think, don't think we'll concede. Okay, well, that's it. Uh, Nelly, thanks for joining. And uh, thanks for having me. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.